0: Listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen.
1: Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured, episode 213. In this edition, we are talking to Alex Hanna of the newly formed union at Google. But first, the news. The COVID-19 pandemic has been devastating for workers, and the relief measures that have come down from the federal government have fallen far short of what's needed to keep people afloat through this crisis. However, one small bright spot is the Families First Coronavirus Response Act legislation passed last March. It brought a significant expansion of paid leave for many workplaces. It provides two weeks of emergency paid leave time for employees who have been directly affected by COVID-19, in firms that have fewer than 500 workers. In addition, parents can get up to 12 weeks of paid leave at two thirds of their normal pay, up to a cap. If they have had to stay home with their kids due to COVID 19 related closures of schools and childcare providers. Now, listeners of this podcast will know that paid leave is pretty sound social welfare policy, even in normal times, but in times of an acute global health crisis, it can definitely save lives. According to a new study from researchers at Cornell, the paid leave offered by the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, or FFCRA, has had an appreciable impact in reducing the overall number of COVID-19 cases. Using a sample of states where workers gained paid leave through the FFCRA, the researchers found that giving workers the option of staying home without having to lose all their income during their time off helped prevent the spread of the virus, resulting in around 400 fewer confirmed cases per day per state. The researchers found that, quote, this estimate translates into roughly one prevented case per day per 1,300 workers who had newly gained the option to take up to two weeks of paid sick leave, unquote. Unfortunately, federal legislation that would provide workers with universal paid family leave on a permanent basis has idled in Congress for years. I talked to a co-author of the study, Nicholas Zebarth, about what the findings tell us about how expanding paid leave can affect the workforce and public health.
2: Our recent findings on the emergency sick leave provision of the FFCRA Act shows that um, in states where workers gained access to paid sick leave for the first time, we had 400 fewer cases, confirmed cases per day. So for the totality of states where workers gained access to paid sick leave for the first time because of this act, this bipartisan federal act, um, we found a reduction of about 15,000 and the data is as of March so April, beginning of May, so in the first wave of the flu. And our title is um, that emergency sick leave provision helped to flatten the curve. And so we, we argue that this is true, and we have a bunch of other evidence from former research that access to paid sick leave reduces the likelihood that people go to work sick and spread diseases and helps to reduce infection rates also during the common flu season. And um, so in total, there's a lot of evidence, in my opinion, that that's the case.
1: That was Nicholas Zebarth, researcher at Cornell University, on paid leave and the
0: pandemic. This week, the United Kingdom headed back into national lockdown, but it appeared for a little while that the public schools would be exempt and would be remaining open, even as viral transmission skyrocketed again and a new, more contagious, theoretically, strain of the virus appeared. So it was, you probably aren't surprised to hear from me, teacher organizing that helped change their minds, and so we are talking to James Kerr, a teacher in London and a member of the National Education Union. So, yeah, can you start out by introducing yourself and where you work?
3: Uh, so, my name is James Kerr. I'm a secondary school English teacher and I work in a school in Lewisham in South London.
0: Excellent. So, give our listeners who are not in the UK and this, not familiar with this a little bit of a timeline in terms of when the schools first closed down last spring, when things reopened and the sort of struggle that's been going on about it since.
3: So the pandemic hit London in mid-March of 2020 um, and um, it began with actually particularly school students coming back from trips in the north of Italy um, and started to spread quite quickly in schools in London Um, and schools were closed uh, quite quickly uh, in March uh, as the pandemic developed but a lot of that came off the back of um, school groups like mine organising um, making demands in terms of basic safety requirements, uh, safe levels of staffing, uh, and eventually the UK was um, was put into a lockdown that lasted for most of the summer term. The Conservative government uh, muted the idea of bringing back all primary schools in the summer term, um, but that was uh, that was pushed back by uh, a lot of organising, some quite big national mobilizations on you know kind of uh, very big zoom calls um and there was a very limited opening of schools at the end of the summer term bringing back some of the exam groups but in much smaller numbers and in a much kind of uh, much more you know strict and disciplined way um, but then over the summer months as the virus subsided uh, the conservatives uh, Made it their mission to reopen schools fully in the autumn at the beginning of the autumn term. Um, obviously, very concerned about the impact uh, that school closures have on the economy and the ability for them to try and, uh, you know, get their velocity of circulation back up again, get businesses open, get people back to work. Um, and so, we didn't really see a major battle at the beginning of the autumn term uh, over school safety, although many of us were campaigning over the summer um out on the streets uh, and raising some of the demands around testing and uh, and um uh you know kind of risk assessments being fit for purpose um but then over the autumn term things really started to worsen we saw the virus spreading uh, and now the new variant um appear in uh, the UK as well um and a very chaotic sist- um you know situation where we saw a lot of schools Uh, forced into partial closures, groups self-isolating for a whole period of time, staff off sick, uh, and in some cases, um, some fatalities as well. And that took us to just before Christmas when uh, some of the councils in London, so the neighbouring council to mine Greenwich, um, put out a statement uh, to say that they were going to move all schools to remote online learning for the last week. The government threatened them with legal action. Um, and forced them to stay open and then literally a few days later um, announced a uh, that they were moving London into what they called tier four so almost a kind of mini lockdown none of us were able to see family or friends over the Christmas period but they still doubled down on this idea they were going to fully reopen uh, in January and that was when the organising really kicked in uh, and we saw um, firstly primary schools were expected to come back on Monday uh, lots of primary school groups uh, submitted letters to their head teacher, um, raising the serious and imminent danger um, and citing kind of important bits of health and safety legislation in the UK. Um, and eventually the government were forced back on that and forced to concede and include schools within the, uh, within the full lockdown uh, of what we see uh, at the moment.
0: Yeah, so the teachers organising clearly in sort of several moments, but particularly right now, has led the government in terms of forcing the schools closed. Um, so talk a little bit more about the organizing that's been going on, the tactics that were used. I know that there's been membership surges within the NEU since the pandemic began, but again, it seems like that really wrapped up over the last couple of weeks.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, even in just the the last week, uh, my union, the NEU, which is the, the biggest education union, um, in with Speech Union in, in Education Union in Europe, but, um, but we put on 16,000 new members, and we, we had a, a huge Zoom call at the weekend where over 400,000 people uh, viewed that um, that call, um, where the kind of strategy around the use of what's called Section 44 of the Employment Rights Act was communicated. But we kind of we you know we'd been there before in terms of big meetings, you know you know historically. You know, huge uh, mobilizations in terms of online uh, engagement, but the the thing that was key this time was um, a willingness for for school workers to stand and stand firm, and to uh, and to, to I mean, we you know to go out of our comfort zone and to actually start to to you know to to raise the need for industrial action that it wasn't just going to be enough to lobby, it wasn't going to be enough just to make the kind of reasoned arguments. It would require actually uh, you know uh you know organizing within school groups and and refusing uh, and saying no which is something that's kind of been a bit absent at times from uh, the pandemic is that confidence to take things on but i think people's confidence um developed and particularly starting to see the the national union uh moving and the leadership uh coming behind that strategy meant that people had confidence to act collectively um to push things back
0: yeah. So, before I get a little bit more into the the union side of this, I do think it's just a little bit bonkers that there's so much denial that the virus is transmitted in schools, and I just wondered, like, what are your thoughts on that? Why why are people in such denial that this happens?
3: Yeah, I Miss, mean, it's incredible. You know, you had Boris Johnson on one day was saying that that schools are safe that that there is no issue with um with you know with safety and covid in schools that it's only the mixing of uh, of children that's the issue which is actually I mean that is the the heart of it that's that is the danger um that exists and then the next day uh, describing schools as vectors of transmission and including them in the lockdown and you know it's just it has completely explode, exposed the ruling class in 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 Britain for for you know for their real motives which is it's never been about our safety. It's never been about young people's safety or their health. It's always been about um, ensuring that schools are open to effectively provide uh, childcare to keep the exam regime uh, on track. Um, and they will use any, you know, any any techniques, any means that they can do that. It's, it's been, you know, you know, it's been very instructive, I think, for a much wider group of people now to see how they operate um, when they're under pressure.
0: Um, so talk about, yeah, is this kind of organising this kind of militancy um, a change for the NEU? What's sort of happening within the union that feels new to you?
3: The history of the NEU is an amalgamation of two unions, the NEUT and the ATL. Um, the NUT always had a, a tradition and a reputation as being a militant, uh, you know, kind of left-led union. The ATL maybe less so. Um but i think what we've seen this time is for, i mean for a, a realization from school workers that that there is no any there is no other way that we you know we we've kind of you know we've tested out the various um you know the various different avenues of struggle also the complete absence of a political alternative in terms of like you know the labor party have you know, have completely tail ended the conservatives on the question of schools uh, reopening. So the political avenue is not there, and um, and I think school workers have started and have learned through experience that they have to rely on their own uh, their own organisation, their own uh, agency in order to change things. And this is a significant moment because I think it's it's kind of you know it's re centred. Um, people's focus on the role of a trade union, which ultimately is about, uh, you know, using, uh, you know, the power of our labour and the withdrawal of our labour to affect change. And so I think um, it's maybe not brand new. And I think a lot of the people who are involved in organising and leading some of that, you know, come from a kind of left tradition, they're socialists, they came from, uh, you know, they have, they have a tradition of, uh, of, you know, militant, union organising. But I think what is really crucial is is that now there is a much, much uh, broader base, a broader layer of people within the union uh, who, who see that as essential for developing, uh, you know, developing ourselves as a, as a serious uh, force that can actually shape uh, education and shape the workplace.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that's, of course, been really important in the US with teacher organising has been parent and, and student solidarity um can you talk a little bit about the support that teachers got around this from parents and and the community
3: yes yeah, i mean it's been a really important part of it because the conservatives have tried to drive a wedge between um between education workers and uh, and and families and parents and i think there is you know there's a recognition i mean firstly the fact that the conservatives have have presided over such a botched response to the pandemic uh, in the first place has really undermined their standing, uh, you know, with, um, you know, particularly working class communities around uh, the country. Um, but the parental aspect of things um, has been, I mean, there has been a kind of certain separation, uh, you know, there has been a, a, a kind of lively Um, an energetic um, campaign uh, amongst parents boycotting the reopening of schools but what we saw in the autumn was the Conservatives changed their policy away from the idea that that, that families can make their own decision whether their children went into schools uh, or not and instead you know started to raise the the prospect of fines uh, and, and pressure on 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 families So I think a lot of a lot of people uh, and and it came out in a lot of the kind of opinion polls that showed a majority of support for schools to be included in lockdown. I think there was a recognition that what we were doing uh, as a union was based on, you know, the the genuine interests of our communities. It wasn't about trying to score political points with the government. Um, But I think we've still got work to do. I think we've got to as a union, we've got to now develop our programme. Uh, you know, obviously, the schools being closed takes away the immediate, you know, burden of, um, you know, the question of, of, of safety of being around, you know, literally thousands of different uh, households every day. But that burden has been transferred. It's been transferred to working class families in particular. You know, schools are places where, you know, a lot of children uh, receive that, you know, free school meals. Um, they are places where they can access resources that they maybe don't have at home. Uh, so we now need to campaign for 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 a better deal for you know for for the whole of the population. It's not just a kind of sectoral issue of whether uh, you know we're all right as education workers. It has to now be about uh, developing that further and winning a, a you know a fair deal for for communities and trying to actually roll back the the brutal austerity that we've seen uh, over the last decade and more. Uh, in Britain, because this pandemic has really exposed, actually, what we've lost in terms of services, uh, you know, in terms of, um, you know, the situation with the gig economy and the kind of precarious nature of life uh, at the moment. So, so uh, you know, I think there is a, a broad base of support for what the union is doing, but that, that will be tested and that will be put under strain. Uh, and that can only be answered by having a, a more developed political programme.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and you sort of answered my my last question, which was going to be what comes next. And of course, you also mentioned that the Labour Party, since at least since Rebecca Long-Bailey got sacked, um, seems pretty uninterested in supporting unions at all, and particularly teachers. Um, so yeah, I mean, what are you thinking that is going to be, I guess, next steps for you and your school group and, and the union more broadly in the next few months?
3: Well. I think the first thing is that obviously the pandemic is not over. We've won some space and time in the sense that schools are going to be closed at least until the February half term. Um, but inevitably, the Conservatives will be, you know, preparing to come back again and try and uh, and, uh, and achieve a full reopening. But actually, even even during this so-called lockdown, we're still seeing, you know, we're still seeing head teachers calling staff to come into you know into school buildings to deliver remote learning uh, on site the issue around workload um for for remote learning is a huge issue with you know men you know members of ours sat at computer screens for you know 10 12 hours a day and the impact that has on their health uh, as well so in my branch and with two other branches uh, of the neu in london we're starting to survey our members. Uh, to ask them whether they support the idea of a ballot for industrial action that would not just be reactive, so not just reacting to the immediate safety concerns but actually winning uh, an agreement with our local council uh, that would cover some of these questions uh, and mean that we 're not into this you know position again where individual school groups are having to uh, you know having to kind of at the eleventh hour um uh you know, go into conflict with their head teacher um and then if we kind of think further ahead, the whole question of school funding is 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 absolutely essential now um you know one of the one of the real strains during this pandemic has been the you know the the, the you know the absence of of levels of staffing that are adequate, the kind of resources that are needed, lower class sizes so students can actually be properly supported um, so you know that kind of militancy that taste for action that recognition that we can we can actually have an impact if we collectivize these issues we now need to turn that into uh uh, something that is part and parcel of everything we do uh, in our work um so yeah so that's you know that's kind of that's what that's what it looks like i think at the moment in britain we've got the kind of immediate uh, questions around the pandemic and the, the vaccine will have a certain impact uh, over the next few months, uh, we hope in in bringing that to a close. But there will be the massive, que- you know, the question of who pays for the pandemic as well. You know, uh, we've already been told that we're not going to receive a pay rise this year. There's going to be another freeze in public sector pay. Uh, you know, those of us who live uh, in places like London, where the you know the cost of living is incredibly high, uh, know that, that that's not a pay freeze. It's very much a pay uh, cut as well. So. Yeah so all of these you know, all of the issues that were bubbling away before the pandemic uh, and might have been pushed to the sidelines slightly uh, you know by the these immediate questions around health and safety will very much come back onto the agenda uh, um very quickly
0: That was James Kerr and we will put more links to information about this up at the dissent website dissentmagazine.org
1: While the streets of New York have been quiet during the economic lockdown, there is still plenty of traffic crisscrossing the city in the form of legions of delivery workers zipping around on their electronic bicycles to deliver fresh meals, munchies and refreshments to hungry customers at extremely high speeds for extremely low pay. They rely on mobile apps like DoorDash and Relay to pick up orders from restaurants and the work is grueling. Delivery workers have long complained about abuse and wage theft at the hands of restaurant owners, or straight up getting bilked by their apps. But now that the pandemic has compounded these hardships, workers have begun to organize under the banner of Los Deliveristas to demand better labor protections. Many of them are undocumented immigrants from Central America, so they are disenfranchised on many levels. But the public health crisis has prompted them to wage an unprecedented campaign for fair pay and humane working conditions. They are working with the Workers' Justice Project, which helps low-wage workers organize in the city. and They are pressuring the city government to do more to compel restaurants to offer basic provisions, such as places where workers can safely wait between deliveries or bathroom access. I talked to Gustavo Ache, one of the workers who's currently organizing with Los Deliveristas, about their plans for bringing pressure to bear on the city.
4: The factors that motivated us to organize are the working conditions that we're experiencing under the app
1: and in times of coronavirus. When the pandemic started, um, how did it change your working conditions?
4: so the conditions are are different but first I must explain that there has always been irregularities with the app especially um, around the payment pagos pero however, the pandemic has just made things more complicated for us, making it harder for us to access to um, bathrooms, access to um, closed-door um, public spaces. You know, not being able to use a bathroom during the pandemic, or uh, working under harsh cold weather conditions without being able to have access to safe spaces to rest.
1: Did you work together? Um, did you communicate over mobile first? Or, um, like, what kind of communication did you have? Uh, because it's hard to organize, like, in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> the
4: first thing you should know is that, know is is that as food delivery workers, um, you know, we use already started using apps, and we have started using the WhatsApp group before the pandemic to start communicating with each other however during the pandemic we started relying more and more on the on the whatsapp group to um, stay communicated especially among those that had no other option but to go out and work um, and even with those that you know um, decided to actually not take the risk um, and stay at home um, but a lot started when we, we, I started and others started doing outreach and started connecting with the organization, um, which is actually Workers Justice Project, talking about the issues, um, about the conditions, and, and, and really started speaking more about what has been happening to us.
1: How did you get in touch with Workers Justice Project? Um, did you know about them before? Or? First of all, you should know that
4: I am a member of the organization for many, many years in 2004. But during the pandemic, it was the organization that was supporting the community. And I started volunteering more actively doing the cash relief. And I was the one who started bringing delivery workers into the organization so they can get benefits. And that's how we started
1: connecting everybody. Can you talk about the app that you use and um, your relationship to the restaurants that you work for? Um, is it, are you consistently, uh, working for one restaurant? Or are you working for different restaurants every day? Or how does it work with the app? The app
4: has, has changed our reality and our relationship with the restaurant. So the core of this is that the app have taken away our relationship with the restaurant and it started naming us as independent contractors, but actually treat us as workers. yes so my reality right now is that I no longer work directly for the restaurant. I work, In one day I can end up um, picking up food from multiple restaurants. Or some days I don't have a restaurant that I've been delivering food
1: from. I know that there have been complaints about wage theft and sometimes uh, the restaurant owners um, mistreating the the workers, can, can you just talk about that relationship?
4: That's one of the things that we're facing is the discrimination from the restaurants where we're consistently being rejected or being kicked out um, of, of the restaurant or being asked not to park our bikes in front of the restaurants, when we're asked not to be near the restaurants, when we are the ones who have kept their businesses open and we're the ones who are delivering and making business for them. So one example in how the apps are complicit in this reality is that, for instance, Relay is one of the apps that we use, and every time they assign us a delivery job, They send us a threatening note that, you know, don't park your bike near the restaurant. Don't ask bathrooms from the restaurant. If you do this, you will be blocked from the app. The other threats we get from the app is that they force us to travel long distances. And if we decide not to take those jobs, they threaten that they will block us from the system.
1: Can you talk about what you hope the city government does for um, the workers. What kinds of protections you want?
4: Okay. Our group has already started reaching out city council members. We initially started meeting with Carolina Rivero, Daniel Drum, Jessica Ramos, and Justin Brennan. The end of the month, what we're hoping is to do outreach to more city council members to make visible our reality. But also, what we're demanding is for these apps to be regulated so we don't have to face this working condition. One of our dreams that we have as workers is to be treated as essential workers. And we just don't want people to say that we are essential workers, but to be treated as like. You know, as a new federal government is stepped in, we are also asking to be recognized for our work. By giving us immigration relief, because it will give us a stronger voice to to confront these apps. And I feel like it is not fair that this country lets these apps or corporations to run their companies by really under a modern type of a slavery and making us live and
1: work under this condition. It was Gustavo Aiche of Los Deliveristas with translation from the Workers' Justice Project.
0: We've talked about Proposition 22 in California quite a lot already, and we will no doubt be talking about it much, much more in the future, both as it affects workers in California and potentially spreads across the country. This week, we learned that union drivers with companies owned by Albertson's Grocery are being laid off, and the company plans to shift to using DoorDash, yes, that gig company, for its deliveries. This includes stores under the names Vons and Pavilions... Mike Dickerson at Knock LA noted, quote, This move comes after nearly a year of celebrating grocery store workers for feeding communities. Earlier this year, Albertson's company's president and CEO, Vivek Sankaran, said the company was taking care of our team. Albertson's companies are working to ensure that every member of our team who faces a crisis can have peace of mind that we will help them get through it. And both quotes there. Those drivers were likened to first responders by that same CEO when the pandemic broke. But the company ended its $2 an hour appreciation pay this summer, even though, of course, all of its workers are still facing the same risks they ever were. And drivers had threatened a strike in October when the company proposed increasing the workers' health care costs. Yes, in a pandemic. Now, of course, it's looking to eliminate those drivers entirely. This despite, Business Insider reported, the company seeing a 153% spike in profits this year. Prop 22 was billed, of course, as preserving drivers' flexibility, but here we see exactly what many of us feared. Flexibility means trading away any job security, in this case including union protections. An Albertsons Company spokesperson confirmed that, quote, Albertsons Companies made the strategic decision to discontinue using our own home delivery fleet of trucks in select locations, including Southern California, beginning February 27th, 2021, adding... We will transition that portion of our e commerce operations to third party logistics providers who specialize in that service. Third party logistics providers, of course, are app companies, and specializing in that service means, apparently, also those same workers who can't be considered really workers at all, just people picking up gigs on the side. It is, of course, this gray area that Prop 22 widened considerably, and it has incentivized this very behavior from companies that are still making out like bandits from our pandemic lives. We will, as I said, have much more on Prop 22 in the future, including most likely an episode dedicated to it very soon. But for now, if you are a gig worker in California or an employee worried that your company will do the same as Albertsons just did, please get in touch. Belabored at descentmagazine.org. This Monday, a new and exciting union experiment went public, the Alphabet Workers' Union. Alphabet, in case you've not been paying attention as they took over our lives, is the parent company of Google. And the union plans to organize workers across the company, including temps, vendors, and contractors, as well as direct employees. Part of the Communications Workers of America, CWA, plan to organize in the tech sector, which is named the Coalition to Organize Digital Employees, or CODE, the alphabet workers are affiliated with CWA Local 1440, and its members are voluntarily paying dues. Of course, right now, the Alphabet Workers Union only represents a tiny fraction of Google's total staff, but nevertheless, it's a shot across the bow at one of the most powerful companies in the world, and another experiment in organizing at a time when traditional unionism is getting its butt kicked. And luckily for Belabored, one of the alphabet unionists is a longtime friend of the show. You may know her from my first book, Necessary Trouble, where she was featured at the time as a leader of the Graduate Workers Union at the University of Wisconsin at Madison during the Wisconsin Act 10 uprising. Now she works at Google, and she is here with us to talk about the union effort there. I am talking, of course, about our friend Alex Hanna. Alex, welcome to Belabored. Um, You have been a unionist for a long time now in various capacities. Um, So start out by telling us how the Alphabet Union is different from previous unions you've been involved with.
5: Sure. So thanks for inviting me. I appreciate being here. So the Alphabet Union is a solidarity union. And so that makes it different. Because it is not a contract-based union, so it's a union that's um, based on you know, what I think is more fundamental to unionism, workers coming together and agitating for um, their rights and for workplace democracy and for changes in their workplaces. Um, this, I think, is... Pretty, I mean, this has happened before. This happened in Wisconsin after Act Ten, uh, and and public sector workers lost the ability to collectively bargain. Um, or in the Barfur recertification was uh, incredibly high, um, and it was, you know, the, the model is is unique and really applicable for for a company like Google because Google itself is a Huge ass company. Um, it is, you know, got 125,000 full time employees and more of that in uh, TEMPS vendors and contractors or TVCs. And so to so get some kind of regular process, uh, uh, having an election would just be infeasible. And to do it at scale where uh, organizers want to be routinely retaliated against um, or shut down or quashed um, would have been really prohibitive. So um, the option was was to do a sol- have a solidarity union, and one advantage that that has it also avoids a lot of these issues with job classifications. And the conscious decision was made to include TVCs in the organizing, and so it's a wall to wall organization rather than an organization that prior- that prioritizes um, full time employees who are the ones that have um, already have most benefits. And so, yeah. Um, so right now, I, I want to say the the union announced with about twenty two hundred and thirty members, but I think it has grown already to five hundred members, um, and that's growing more and more every day. I you know wouldn't be surprised if we get to uh, somewhere in the thousands before the 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 month is over.
1: Can you talk about the challenges that? The organizers faced in persuading people to sign up, or perhaps there perhaps there were no challenges. Um, were there any um, Were there any sort of uh, I, I guess um, you know mis- mistaken beliefs or uh, wariness that you had to overcome uh, among your coworkers when trying to convince them that unionizing was in their best interest?
5: I think what's important here is to kind of think about the history of unionization uh, at Google um, and the history of, of, activism at Google. It's has pretty long history. Um, this goes back to, you know, I, I think a lot of the the, the press on this um, lately has been focusing a lot on the women's walk that happened in November, 2018. Um, but The organizing also predates that. I mean, there is a lot of advocacy um, and agitation that was happening at Google prior to that, including uh, work by folks like Erica Joy, Liz Fong Jones, um, folks who were doing things internally that looked a lot like organizing and may have not been agitating for uh, a union per se, but were kind of Proto, proto moves to having some kind of la- a labor organization. And something that's kind of interesting um, that predates Google to my, you know, and, and, and to me being there, I've been there for about two and a half years, um, is that Google people have been some of the most active in agitation around particular issues around Project Maven, which was um, the military contract that was um, going to be given to Uh, Google Cloud to Project Dragonfly, which was a project um, which would have put the Google search engine in China, Um, the um, um, various other campaigns um, around Customs and Border Patrol. And what we've seen in the past five years is a much more um, intensively a surveillance and retaliation-oriented response from management, and so the you know many of the people who were the early organizers at Google um, have been pushed out. Either they resigned um, because their jobs were becoming more and more untenable, um, and 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 they were being targeted by management, um, or they were out and out fired. That's what happened with the Thanksgiving uh, five last year, uh, who were agitating around, um, uh, against contracts with, um, customs, border patrol, um, and, uh, and, um, and, and homophobic YouTube creators. And so, and they were doing this under the pretense, they fire them under the pretense of misusing Google resources or, you know, looking at, people's calendars are very, you know, really tenuous pretenses. Um, You know, so in terms of the challenges, I mean, the challenge is that you're organizing at a company who is made it's, you know, bread and butter um, being a data collection hog, (laughs) being surveillance of, of users. And so they're of course going to turn those tools onto organizers. And so, even in just setting up the union, I mean, the challenges in terms of how do you even identify people? How do you have these conversations? You basically have to move, you know, a lot of these conversations that happen off corporate devices um, for fear of some kind of retaliatory behavior that's coming from management.
1: Can you elaborate on some of the tactics that google has used to try to suppress organizing um over the past year um you know in terms of google using perhaps some of its own digital tools um to thwart your efforts and i guess how has that affected the experience of working at google um you know let alone organizing at google
5: right right you know i come from my graduate employee unionism which is like the most usually like there's the communication tools that you use and doing that um, are mostly like email. And, but then also, I mean, having in-person meetings, of course. Um, And like the thing about the, when I moved to Google, what was really unique about it is that this is a company that has like really good communication tools internally. And actually like one of the kind of most interesting organizing devices is this like internal meme board it's called Meme Gen. Um, and it, it, it's just, you know, it's really, it's really funny. Um, because Meme Gen is like, I, I've like as also like a like a scholar of social movements, I found it in like someone who like looks up communic- communicative technologies. I just find it fascinating because it becomes this like area of sort of discourse that, that happens. Um, there's also like an internal version of, of G. Uh, Google Plus um, that I don't know a lot about, but it's also this space where like there's a lot of communication and discussion that happens, um, and then internal listsers that across kind of the company. And so, like, because it's a company that's so distributed, um, a lot of these communication tools are the things that are relied on for organizing. And so, especially within the, like the past two years, the kind of um, there's been some moves that have. Really demonstrated how that kind of communication and those venues of organizing have become more and more uh, hostile places. So, for instance, um, there formerly was like an all hands meeting where anybody could basically ask um, questions to the founders, and this is, um, you know, as as much as one could say that this is, you know, was. Um, a venue in which they could actually receive feedback and, and answer in, a, in an honest way, this, this, this somehow predates me. I, I entered kind of as they, they, they were phasing this out. Um, but they stopped, they basically stopped doing this all hands, meaning this TGIF um, meaning and, or, or rather it has transitioned into one in which they basically only present uh on products and they don't really talk about any kind of concerns um they they installed this plugin on everybody's machine um that had some really questionable basis it was like a community moderation plugin and then it did things like monitor, monitor what events you were creating um in a calendars and like who you were inviting um they were also monitor, monitoring certain listservs, um and, and paying attention, and and then they also um, they had hired uh, a union busting firm called IRI um, to um, to uh, basically bust a uh, or monitor a union that was that was formed in in uh, uh, in Pittsburgh of, of TVCs, um, and that and there was some reporting yesterday advice about how that company had been used to, um, monitor, um, uh, a nurses union that was organizing as well and had developed this long list, basically targeting particular organizers. Um, so they're, they're using kind of a mix of like old school retaliation, like old school surveillance tactics and also new school ones in terms of retaliation. Um, what they've done in the past is if they don't out and out fire folks like they did with the Thanksgiving five and using some thin um, uh, kind of uh, excuse for it, as well as the, what they did with my former manager to meet um, who was fired in December um, after they said she they said she resigned, uh, even though they clearly fired her um, if they don't do that, what they've done is they've found other ways to retaliate by um, giving people uh, uh, poor reviews on their uh, performance reviews um, and giving no justification for that. Um, They've also um, reorged people or uh, reassigned their responsibilities. So they just don't have, you know, the same responsibilities they had before or put them in a corner of the company. Um, They've, especially done this with women, they did this with Claire Stapleton, uh, but they've done this with um, uh, folks where they've recommended that they go on um, a medical leave, um, basically, you know, gaslighting them and saying that they have some kind of, um, you know, they they need some time off to sort out their mental health. Um, And so, you know, they've done this in various different ways um, in, in, you know, whether it's, whether it's just kind of making work unbearable for them, uh, or, you know, when they can't out-and-out out fire them.
1: Just bouncing off of the, um, the recent controversy surrounding the firing of, of Timot Gabriel and the research um, that came out of that, um, can you talk about how issues of racial diversity and equity uh, in the tech industry uh, might have shaded into some of the attitudes towards organizing at Google? Um, was that an was that something that came up in the conversations you were having with coworkers?
5: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And the issue of diversity and inclusion, I don't really like those words because they're kind of corporate buzzwords for <laughs> any kind of, because they don't want to talk about racism. Um, <laughs> um, my collaborator, Ellen Berry, actually has a an article in Slate that I think is titled like I think the title is like diversity is like the word that white people use when they don't want to talk about race. Um, it's, and it's, and and it's, you know, and I mean, they, and then they'll kind of, they'll, they'll be like, well, we want to talk about multiple oppression. And then they kind of, you know, they're like, yes, we've, we know the term intersectionality. And then they like, don't know any, like, don't know what it means. Um, or they didn't employ it in a really terrible, like,
1: diversity
5: training trainings. Yeah. Like the, you know, like the whole, the whole diversity training industry is like a huge drift and like um, also is, you know, a way to like bring in people um, who, who run these training. Anyway, this is like, I don't want to go too far aside, but it's definitely like, uh, you know, it it itself has like a, a, an organizing depressing measure. Um, In any case, the, so, so in terms of, I mean, it's obvious that that tech has this awful issue um, with with representation of 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 black folks, indigenous folks, people of color, um, and also uh, women. Um, and there's also a disparity between full time employees um, who are mostly uh, white or Asian and also the um tvcs who are predominantly black and brown uh who are women who can't afford to even live in the kind of close of the offices in the bay area um and um so there's this already this huge class disparity that falls clearly on on, on racial lines um and you know, it's it's not surprising that some of the most active organizers in the tech labor movement have been um, black and brown folks, have been queer and trans folks, have been women. Um, these are the folks that are having the you know, kind of report constantly the worst working conditions at these companies, um, the kind of playgroundness of um, you know that's portrayed in like movies like. Um, Who's that, like Vince Vaughn movie, The Intern, or something, um, where there is like slides at Google and everything is like amazing? Um, you know, there, there is like constant. You know, this is not the experience of um, of these workers, whether it's in full time roles or in the TVC roles, um, and so you see a lot more attrition of uh, of black and brown folks in um, in. in in that work. So, you know, I think that the thing that I think is, has been necessary in this organizing is, is recognizing that, you know, any kind of labor organization that exists at a place like Google needs to be explicitly anti-racist needs to be explicitly conscious of race um, and um, needs to engage in a concerted anti-racist critique of the organizations. Um, and so that's something that I think is needs to be emphasized from the beginning. Um, and given that, like who has been the organizing and in the room the most vocal, it has been prioritized. Um, and I think that's also something that needs to be like reinforced and and, and, and goes along with the cross-class nature of the organizing.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've been struck since, you know, watching this for however many years it's been going on, and particularly since Trump was elected, that a lot of tech sector organizing was spurred at first sort of by workers organizing around the power that their companies have in society, mm-hmm. um, the work that Google might do with the Trump administration or with the Chinese government, and mm-hmm. um, And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that sort of leads back to people then talking about themselves as workers and their own experiences within Google.
5: Mm, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point, Sarah. And tying it back to, you know, some of this initial kind of work that was in organizing that was done. So for instance, last year, you know, the campaign, Against Customs and Border Patrol, a lot of these, a lot of this work was explicitly anti-Trump policies that were anti-immigration, um, that were clearly targeting um, uh, Muslim folks, folks from um, from Central uh, Central America and Latin America. So that's, that's sort of one moment, and the other moment, I would say. Um, is that along with the, after the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, um, there was a, also a campaign that grew around um, against police contracts. Um, Google itself didn't have many police contracts, at least that were visible. Um, they may have many more, um, but they had some visible ones with kind of like one um, police department had uh was using like G suite, which is like Google docs and such. Um, But then there's like, those are also used in many municipalities too. And so there's like other, you know, they're kind of tied up with, you know, what contracts are where. Um, And that itself was a pretty large action. Got, you know, two or 3000 signatures um, internally. And so Organizing around these issues, I think is is really illustrating. I think tying to this identity of who is actually building these products and who's actually in the room, and whether it's palatable to people building those products. Um, You know, I work in the AI space, and you know, there's sort of this debate within quote unquote AI ethics that's sort of like, well, who bears the responsibility? of like an AI system, if an AI system discriminates against people of color, then what, you know, what is the responsibility of like the programmer or the data or the agency? And I think more and more along with the sort of like thinking about who's actually building the products is this really cognizant uh, and I think you you framed it really well, this like cognizant reflection of workers as workers, as people who are building this stuff. And so much of the discourse that's around and you know, like much of the motivation that's coming from um, the unionism, the nascent unionism is thinking about, well, materially, you know, we uh, are are very well off comparatively um, in terms of the full time employees um at the same time these are the things that are being built that affect millions and billions of people and folks have this real responsibility of saying well if we need some kind of way to push back against the building of these products which are going to disproportionately harm um marginalized groups um and you know these things i really appreciate folks really seeing going hand in hand you know you can stop this because you don't really trust leadership to do the right thing but if you're organized then you are you definitely have much more power to make those demands and stop those awful horrible things from going out into the world
0: yeah, there is this guy, Mike Solana, whoever that is. This um, yeah. tweet sort of went viral this week, and I'm going to read it because it was so perfect about like the way that this is always discussed. Um, and he said, A tiny fraction of Google employees appropriating the language of exploited coal miners while enjoying the most privileged white-collar work experience in human history should not be the subject of glowing press. This isn't a union, it's a LARP, and it's offensive. Of course, he's a boss. Yeah. So, um <laughs> But it's really striking because, like, it's always coal miners that get yeah. brought up when people are like, "Oh, you don't ha- need to have a union because you're privileged."
5: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and someone posted as well. You know, I think a follow up that was. Uh, I want to get their name right. I it was, um, uh, uh, Gabriel Winant, who I think
0: okay. yes, yeah,
5: <laughs> and he was like people quite literally used to say coal miners weren't workers and he posts from, uh, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, I think that understanding of, I mean, there's a very narrow understanding of labor and I mean, this is going to happen with the, with the boss classes, right? They're going to go, you know, why do you need a union? That's for, you know, like factory workers and, you know, and, 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 and whatnot. And, and it's, it's really, it's really something to behold the kind of, the kind of like, uh, you know, what, what to call it, willful ignorance of, of the history. And, and, and as if, you know, the work that tech workers do can't be exploitative or extractive. Um, and, you know, like, I mean, we, we, we're, we're seeing this kind of, all over. I mean, this exists across, across the industry. I know the games um, games industry is sort of some of the worst repeat offenders of this. So, like, just the game deadlines of being, like, work, 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 you know, wild 80-hour weeks. Um,
0: oh, 80. 80 is a good week.
5: <laughs> yeah, right? Right? And it's just, like, in, just these ridiculous types of... Of 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 actions, and, and I mean that that's not to say even thinking about people who do, who basically power AI, um, like the the um the folks who do uh, data annotation and the folks who do content moderation, um, and these are people who work um, you know, all day either doing repetitive tasks of doing some kind of annotation on data sets um, or they are, um, uh, you know, looking at beheadings and, 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 um, uh, awful, uh, other types of content in people's feeds. And, 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 you know, most of this, uh, a lot of this is actually still done in the U S and there's been reporting on that. Um, and a lot of it's also been, um, uh, been, been shipped, uh, outside of, uh, outside of the U S and, and including in places like, uh, uh, in the Philippines and India, so yeah, so I mean, this is this is like <laughs> there's this idea and this this sort of you know this 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 boss idea that you know there's no need for this this kind of union and I mean that's that's also the sort of same things that you know there's that's an ideology that we also fight against you know that union unionism itself is this outdated corrupt uh kind of mode um and you know there's a lot of people who work in at google who believe that and you know not a lot of of surprise they tend to be male they tend to be white or asian um coming from kind of majoritarian groups within um their countries of origin um or, or 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 their heritage or um and there's also a caste component to that um um especially thinking about um south asian workers and so yeah i mean like the people who are basically you know some of the strongest anti unionism comes even though they're ostensibly liberal um they have these these strong anti union ideas
0: Connecting back to that is, of course, talking about organizing with the TVCs, with people who do all the work at Google, whether that's cleaning the offices and serving the food or programming AI. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I sort of had two questions based on that. One is why it matters to organize with the workers who do very different work. And then I'll ask the other one as a follow up.
5: Yeah, I mean, it it makes sense to organize with these workers because these workers are treated routinely as second-class workers they don't have you know these are workers who are doing much of the manual work they also do a lot of the same work as full-time employees um, some of these organiz- some of the, those workers have some existing labor organizations uh so the kitchen staff, I think, is organized with Unite here. Um there are other um there are other staff um unions um for some of those workers. Um but basically in terms of things like access, in terms of things like food, um people who are doing the same jobs basically get shut out of things, don't have the same communications. And so The solidarity between groups, I think this is, I mean, I think this is hugely important um, in terms of thinking about where they are in the organization and what they're being denied. Um, It also signals this really, you know, I think it's a, it's it's just a, it's it's like a hugely powerful solidarity measure in thinking about what it actually means to be in solidarity with folks who are around the organization um and there's a history of this solidarity within Google um in which you know there were um a group of workers that were um on a team that was working on Google Assistant. And I think there were like a group of folks that were, I'm not gonna get this exactly right, but they were I think they they have to hire many people to get these um get these like AI systems whether it's Google Assistant to basically do the right thing they're often like linguists um who are doing annotations of the of the ai uh of, of like actual speech um and these workers had been um they basically shortened contracts of 34 temp workers on this team um and um and there was a large response from full-time employees in solidarity with them and so you know, I think this is, I mean, it's, this is sort of a thing that I'm really heartened to see in the Alphabet Workers Union that this is a cross class organization. And because it is a solidarity union, um, those, the union can be cross class in nature without having to do things like rely on job classifications or kind of get into the middling and into and, and, and what that looks like. Um, so that, helps not constrain the action into what possible actions could be done in support of different groups of workers.
0: Yeah, um so the other thing I wanted to ask about this is sort of can you tell us a little bit more about what you do? You've mentioned some of it. Um and so what having a union means to you in your part of Google?
5: Sure. Yeah. So I am a sociologist by training. That's what I did at Wisconsin. Um and then I, I'm at Google and I work on the ethical AI team. And so what we do is we focus on discussing and explicating the potential harms that may come from different new AI technologies. And the uh, so I do a lot of work that focuses on data sets, um, given that AI is a lot of math that's uh, embedded on top of data, much of the data, which is um Quite terrible, which is gathered um, in such a way that uh, often exacerbates racial, gender, and class um, inequality. Um, I researched that, and you know the the kinds of things in terms of to me, to Bruce firing, she had been fired, um, and the kind of ostensible response or the the, the response that they've given is that. She had written this paper on large language models, which are these um, basically like if you think of a model that like um takes in like one word, it can like spit out a bunch of other words that are somewhat somewhat related. Um and so they were writing about some of the issues with those models that were uh including environmental costs, and including um potential for uh racist language, sexist language. Which has been shown by a lot of other folks as well. Um, And the argument that they were proffering in that paper is that, like, we're just developing these really large models that have, like, these data that, like, no one knows where it comes from, or we know where it comes from, but we really can't document it, or we need to test it. Um, And then we're putting these things out in the world. And these types of tools are being used in products every day. And so she had been. Fired for doing this work, and I mean, they say this is a cover that they go. For first off, that's an absolutely bunk reason. You don't fire somebody because they write a paper. Um, you know, that's you know, that's a bullshit excuse. They had been, she had been on their list for quite a while for being a vocal black woman for being uh, advocating for people, diversity, inclusion. She had done a lot of work to even get me onto the team because she was saying we need a sociologist who knows sociology to actually talk about social implications of technology, um, how novel. And the um, and so then, you know, in terms of the relation of organizing to the work, I mean, much of the work that I do is, is going to be critical of Google technology is going to be critical of Google adjacent technologies. And um, if I have to fear retaliation for doing my job, then that's a huge problem. So one reason the union is hugely important is there needs to be protections for people who are doing work that's going to be critical of Google's activities, whether that's in research, whether that's in product, whether that's in organizing. I mean, there needs to be protections and the balance of power needs to be shifted towards workers inside a company um, who are concerned about what the company is doing.
0: Excellent. Um, so we've we've referred to this a few times um but of course you're I know you from your time as the uh, co-president of the TAA in in Wisconsin which was of course the union that started the uprising way back in um 9 years ago now
5: 10 it's just is- 2020 it's
0: 2021 <laughs> it's Bonkers. um 10 years so yeah um wow um but so Right. So in the last 10 years, we've seen more attacks like the ones in Wisconsin on collective bargaining, not just in the public sector, um, although certainly a lot of them in the public sector. Um, so in a time when like there's more interest than has been in a long time in unionizing, but the model of collective bargaining, the NLRB under Trump especially, but I don't have great hopes for it reversing itself entirely under Biden, um, this has all been in decline So I wanted to ask you about sort of why declaring this union publicly as a minority of workers, um, why sort of talking about this publicly now is so important in the, the sort of broad conversation around unions in general.
5: Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a great question. I mean, especially in thinking about what kind of environment you're in and, you know, going back to the old TAA days, you know, after Act 10 passed, it was kind of a mad rush then to, you know, what what would it look like to actually have a kind of union like the TAA under that kind of legislative environment? Um, and, um, you know, we had long conversations of whether, you know, meeting the, the totally bonkers uh, recertification um bar that that act tense that was even worth time, and I think you know we quickly understood that you know you know this isn't really worth our trouble right here, you know, because you know we can we are still a union um we're still a union that advocates for workers, and while we won't have a contract, we can still act concertedly and something that I really appreciate from my time with the t a a and coming into, um, the alphabet workers union is that the TAA, I think is one of the most radical, you know, radical unions in Wisconsin. Um, it has a tradition, a long tradition of direct action. It has a tradition of, of, um, of social movement unionism. It has, you know, rarely been at, you know, in contrast to much of the the service unions um, that exists within the state, and had been the one that was out in front during the Act Ten protests and the Wisconsin uprising, and the parallels between the two are actually quite stark, <laughs> because the kind of union, the solidarity unionism, looks a lot like social movement unionism. Dare I say it is social movement unionism? You don't have a contract on which you can fall back and, and rely. Tech workers have always been in the U.S. or, or, or most of the time at-will employees and whose positions have been so precarious um, who could be replaced very quickly, um, even though they are, you know, and this is especially true for for, for TVCs. Um, and so the kind of union that you do need is one that is going to be active and a social movement union that's going to primarily be able to achieve gains through direct action through um agitation through organizing um, and so it's you know it's it's sort of you know almost not surprising to me um and maybe you know maybe this is this is this is odd to say, but it's it's almost not surprising to me. That we do see uh unionization effort when unions are you know the kind of traditional um bargaining model uh is 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 kind of broken and in 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 really um hard to enforce um because I mean this is like this is this is the response you need in this sort of environment where it's just kind of it's 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 so impossible to bar so high to actually have a legally recognized union. Um, so it, it actually lends itself well to say, well, what we are going to have is some kind of a worker organization that will be organizing in nature, that will be social movement oriented, that's going to focus on the technologies that are being built, that's going to focus on building cross-class and anti-racist solidarities. Um, you know, it, I, I I don't want to say it's like you know, a lot of, it, it's taken a lot of work to get there, um, but it, it it does make sense to me because that's what's going to thrive in this kind of environment.
1: Can you just explain sort of the brass tacks of how uh, a minority union would work at Google, um, given that there's a lack of, you know, formal collective bargaining rights? Um, what kind of tools, in your arsenal to sort of bring pressure to bear um, as a relatively small group within this gigantic organization, and um, you know you don't have to show all your cards. But um, could you mm-hmm. talk about sort of uh, what how you plan to use your power?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's been a lot of work that's been done already, and the groundwork for this is is huge in terms of you know the one you know ensuring that we have an organization that's able to respond to particular abuses of company power and speaking with a unified voice. I mean, I think that in itself is, 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 is huge. Um, I also think that, you know, right now this, because of who we are and where we sit, we also have a lot of, um, communicative power, you know, um, and, that itself is, um, is important. I will say it's not sufficient. Uh, I'll, you know, there's like a tiny Todd Gitlin, s- like sitting on my on my l- my shoulder, <laughs> you know, and and he's like, you know, Sorry, that was too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this-
1: grumbling and everything.
5: <laughs> he's like, you know, this is a waste of fucking time to like you know try to get media, um, and um. And, you know, like, and media is important, but is, of course, you know, there are extreme limits to media uh, activism. And um, Sarah Soberage, who's a, a sociologist, she's also written some follow-up books on that old Gitlin hypothesis, um, which is called uh, Sound and which is about, like, how media activism is also, like, very has, a, has very, you know, very clear limits. Um, and I mean when push comes to shove, the stuff that's going to be the most, you know, the most important is going to be the ability for direct action. And it's going to be those ability, the ability of folks to um, get into, to exercise their power as workers and to um, do things that are going to be disruptive to the normal workings of an operation like Google. And, you know, at any given time, if that happened within a worker individually, it would be, you know, immediate grounds for dismissal. But as we bend more and more together, um, and grow more and more numbers, we know that we have strength in those numbers. We have safety in those numbers. And so, you know, that's where the power is is really going to be.
1: So in terms of of the future of organizing in the tech sector, um, There's obviously been relatively little sort of visible union activity um, in Silicon Valley. Um, I I think Kickstarter is one one notable exception. And um, there have been some organizing efforts, obviously, in the gaming industry. And of course, there's been organizing um, and the different tiers of Amazon workers. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you think this initiative that you're involved with um, might influence
5: other workers and other tech sectors? I think we can't understate how important to have a public effort here has been and to come public with this. I think it does illustrate a different kind of model that can exist. And there's been a lot of folks who have written, uh, a lot of folks have called this an experiment. <laughs> and I think in in, in in many senses it is. Um, we're kind of a new ground, um, but we also follow are following a lot of the Work that's been done by other folks who have organized have organized like um, the work that's been done uh, by gig workers um, who have led the way in um, in advocating for rights for Uber drivers for Instacart drivers and especially under the new regime of Prop Twenty Two, you know, in 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 California where their legislative environment has become just more and more awful um, now that uh, Uber and, and Lyft can still classify them as independent contract contractors. Um, the, and so, you know, we're seeing these kinds of um, minority unions, solidarity unions coming up, um, you know, in their case, by necessity in our cases, because the site is just so huge. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I hope this we do see a wave of organizing that happens across the industry. Um, whether it will happen, I think, you know, time will tell. Um, you know, I think some of the things at play in, you know, it, at Google are kind of unique. Um, we'll see if that happens at other huge tech companies like Facebook, Microsoft, uh, Amazon it's heartening to see that there's been collective actions at all these companies with Microsoft and the advocacy against ice and, 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 um, trying to push Microsoft to drop ice contracts and as well as, um, with GitHub, um, Amazon and, and the climate strike that they've been organizing around, uh, Facebook has been, workers have also been very vocal. Um, and I do hope it is a model where folks can, take these actions, which are arranged around particular single issues, and then tie them into kind of a more robust worker organization.
1: To end with, um, do you have any final thoughts on where you think your union is going or things that we should look out for? And I guess if you have any advice for uh, people who are thinking about uh, organizing uh, their workplaces elsewhere in the tech industry. Um, any uh,
5: any any words of wisdom to drop on them? <laughs> sure. Um, I mean, I'm I'm pretty, you know, I'm pretty hopeful. This has been a really heartening thing. Seeing the response of this has been really heartening, even though know, there's plenty of, of VC and tech CEO trolls that don't know anything <laughs> about organizing. Uh, up in my mentions. Um, you know, this is, (laughs) this has been a really, it means you're doing something right. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, My favorite was the one CEO who, in response to his CTO saying that, uh, all alphabet workers union workers should be fired. Uh, the CEO said, oh, we're, we're actually going to start a union tomorrow. And I responded by saying, oh, you mean you are going to start a company union? And then he explained you know, toast a mansplain, uh, unions to me. And I'm like, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> uh, so despite that, the response has been really heartening from other labor leaders, from other tech workers, from, um, from politicians and policymakers. Um, and you know, I'd say, you know, words of wisdom. I mean, you know, this stuff starts at home. This stuff starts with your team. I mean, it's organizing is organizing, whether it's graduate workers or whether it's, you know, your colleagues, it's um, it's having conversations, it's expressing shared concerns and thinking about what you can
0: do about it. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org.
1: that was Alex Hanna, a sociologist at Google and a member of the newly founded Alphabet Workers Union. And now it's time for ARG! I wish I'd written that. My pick for ARG is The Case for Giving Workers Ownership Rights by Osita Noanevu in The New Republic. The shuttering of tens of thousands of businesses across the country due to the pandemic has wrought havoc on the lives of millions of workers. But... Maybe it didn't have to be this way. We take for granted the fact that workers are inevitably the casualties of every economic disruption and that mass unemployment is the unavoidable collateral damage of every recession. Yet the damage to businesses that the pandemic has wrought is a byproduct of disruptions to a certain profit model. What if the whole paradigm of business were turned on its head and employment were prioritized above finances? Noir Neville quotes policy analyst Peter Goen and how businesses would see a different calculus if they were owned collectively by workers instead of by bosses, and how the government could facilitate this transition. If a company fails and the owners want to bail, Gowen explains, quote, the government can be stepping in and saying, even though there's no private owner at this place, the workers might still know about what's going on in their business. They have the expertise, they have the knowledge, they know how to run whatever is being made or whatever services are being provided, and they run it themselves. And that could save a lot of jobs, it could save a lot of livelihoods, and it could create a lot of economic security on a common need for people. Unquote. It's not rocket science. Workers know how to run the business probably a lot better than the CEOs do. Other countries have used policies to encourage conversions of traditional firms to worker-owned cooperatives. In Italy, for example, the so-called Marcora framework a law that has been in place since the 1980s in various iterations, gives workers and failing companies first dibs in collectively taking over the firm and turning it into a co-op. Nonprofit finance agencies contribute startup capital to facilitate the conversion, including subsidized loans from the country's sustainable growth fund. Hundreds of firms have been converted this way so far. In the U.S., where there are fewer than 1,000 cooperative enterprises, the concept of the worker-owned co-op is not nearly as widespread as it is in Europe, but it's gaining in popularity as are various schemes to give workers a greater economic stake in their workplace. Senator Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign platform proposed a scheme to give employees ownership in their firms as a sort of enhanced version of employee stock ownership. The goal would be to expand employee-owned shares of publicly traded companies to one-fifth of each firm. Nwanevu writes, if implemented, ownership funds would grant workers a greater say on matters ranging from pay and labor conditions to corporate ethics and the environmental costs of business activity all while giving them hundreds of thousands of dollars in dividend payments a year, unquote. Sure, for anti-capitalists, you have to grapple with the tricky ethics of making workers invested in a capitalist enterprise. But a 20% ownership stake would give them considerable clout. Just as a collective bargaining agreement gives workers a direct stake in the continued productivity and longevity of a firm. But isn't this like giving working people money for nothing? Would that fly in the United States? Yes, this happens regularly even here. Look at the red state of Alaska and its permanent fund, which dishes out free money each year derived from the state's oil wealth, putting about 1600 bucks in the pockets of each resident. Granted, it's not sustainable to base your society's trust fund in the profits of extractive industries, but Alaska's magic money tree shows that there's enough money sloshing around in corporate coffers that an effective government scheme could capture a fair share of that revenue and redistribute it to workers. Worker ownership expands on this idea of shared equity by giving working people a direct stake in a company's future. Not just passively skimming profits with stocks, but giving them, hopefully, leverage to direct how that capital is used. Does this model turn workers into bosses? In a sense, if you're in a co-op, it turns workers into co-owners. Yet, while cooperatives do hew to a basic business structure within capitalism... They also lack the hierarchical structure of conventional corporations, and since they are worker-owned, their bottom line does not simply revolve around generating profits for rich shareholders who never spend a day in that workplace. Ultimately, the worker-owned cooperative and worker-ownership funds are akin to a form of harm reduction. Leftists can get behind these enterprises because they offer a more ethical framework for surviving, even prospering in a market economy, yet they are subject to the same critiques as any capitalist enterprise. As Gar Alperowitz wrote, quote, operating in a market system. Worker cooperatives are subject to many of the problems of any enterprise operating in competition with others. They must externalize and reduce costs when under pressure, which can lead to environmental despoliation, and as we see with many co-ops today, the use of wage labor, unquote. Right? So until we abolish wage labor, we're going to have to figure out a way to make that wage labor pay better. And when they work effectively, cooperatives are less about ideological purity than they are about providing fairer, more humane working conditions and ensuring that workplaces are democratically run. Like unions, which, by the way, can coexist with a cooperative enterprise, they are at best a check on the outsized power of capital and the concentration of wealth and political influence at the top of the economic hierarchy. Cooperatives may never become a majority of firms, but they do offer a counterweight to the rapacious growth at all costs model, conventional corporations. In the midst of this economic nightmare that we're all living through, worker ownership is an idea worth revisiting when we envision what kind of economy might emerge from the smoldering embers of this pandemic. Nevu concludes, quote, There is talk all the time now about a democratic crisis. Many are justly concerned that our political system and bad political actors have conspired to deny a majority of Americans an equal say in matters that affect them and the polity as a whole. But the same has always been true of our economic system. If democratic values hold enough moral weight to warrant their defense of the ballot box, they're surely worthy of defense at the places where we earn our livings and within an economy that routinely destroys livelihoods, unquote. Given the sad, chaotic assault on democracy that we witnessed at the Capitol this week, we might want to think about ways to build and protect democracy closer to home. When the economy eventually starts to reconstitute itself after this pandemic, big business will be eager to resurrect the pre-COVID status quo. But a labor force that has hit rock bottom could benefit perhaps from a wave of creative destruction by democratizing workplaces or starting new ones through the collective action of workers by replacing the old business model with a fairer way of working. We won't just be restoring livelihoods, we'll be giving people more power over their lives.
0: So, you know us here at Belabored, always bringing you the good news. Okay, well, it's not that often that there is good union news these days, so we take what we can get. And so, for ARG, I wanted to bring you a story by friend of the show, C.M. Lewis, known to you perhaps as one of the editorial collective members at Strikewave, and the author of a piece titled, The Stunning Workers' Victory in New Mexico That You Haven't Heard About at In These Times. Stunning victory? We'll take that. It seems that last March, New Mexico's governor signed into law a bill titled HB 364, which was a public sector labor law overhaul. And hidden in that bill was a present for those public sector workers. Lewis explains, quote, one stunning aspect of HB 364 went mostly unmentioned in the public debate over its passage. Section 7C of the bill made New Mexico one of the few states to provide public employees the right to form a union through card check. That provision has already paid off. Organizers with University of New Mexico graduate assistants say they filed for union recognition under the new law on December 9th. Card check, sometimes called majority sign-up, requires that employees submit cards signed by a majority of the proposed bargaining unit. After it's confirmed they have a majority, they have a recognized union. Nine states, California, New York, New Jersey, Illinois, Massachusetts, Oregon, Washington, Maine, and New Mexico, have strong mechanisms for mandatory recognition using card check. A number of additional states, such as Kansas, North Dakota, and Maryland, have card check provisions that apply to smaller groups of public employees and which may have weaker provisions. Two others, Oklahoma and New Hampshire, passed card check laws in 2004 and 2007, only to repeal them in 2011. You all remember 2011. Card check was, of course, key to the labor law reforms that some of us are old enough to remember being proposed in Barack Obama's first term. That bundle of reforms called the Employee Free Choice Act, or EFCA, died, as we all remember, in the early months of his presidency and hasn't been revived. But in New Mexico, Lewis notes, we could have a real test of how card check might work. While most of the states that have public sector card check, he notes, didn't see spikes in membership when the provision became law, that's largely because they had high public sector density already. New Mexico does not. It is 36th in the nation. Lewis notes, quote, This means there's unprecedented room for growth, room that will provide insight into whether or not card check expands union power like worker advocates claim. There are already signs that it does. The graduate assistants recently filed for recognition announced their organizing drive in October, choosing to affiliate with the United Electrical, Radio and Machine Workers of America, UE. The campaign gained new urgency because of the passage of card check and the COVID-19 pandemic. According to Samantha Cooney, a graduate assistant in the Department of Political Science and a member of the United Graduate Workers of University of New Mexico Organizing Committee, graduates decided they needed to get down to it and get a supermajority by December, and we ended up doing that. Graduates had already begun organizing prior to the law's passage, and they were extremely happy when the bill was signed because it made our journey toward unionization that much easier, end quote. So if New Mexico takes off, this is a path to be followed in several other places, Lewis notes, quote, Virginia, Nevada, Colorado, Delaware, Connecticut, and Rhode Island all have Democratic Party trifectas with no card check process for public sector workers, End quote. Of course, organizing also brought about the law change in New Mexico in the first place. Faculty union drives in the University of New Mexico brought new interest in labor law reform, and those workers helped lobby for the legislation. A reminder that while legal changes can definitely help, it takes workers in motion winning power in the first place to make those legal changes happen. As we know too well around here, they aren't gifts from above. That is all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for much more on Proposition 22, the Alphabet Workers' Union, Los Deliveristas, and Work in Public Schools and Elsewhere Under COVID-19, also about my forthcoming book, Work Won't Love You Back. Thanks, as always, go to the wonderful folks at Descent who host us from the beginning, to Natasha Lewis and now Colin Kinnebura for editing us, and most importantly, of course, to you for listening to us, for sharing us with your friends, tweeting about us, talking about us, writing to us, and sharing your stories with us. Special thanks to those of you who are sustaining members of the podcast, either over at the descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored, or on our Patreon with shiny new rewards over at patreon.com slash belabored. If you don't have the spare cash right now, we know, but if you do and you're still working and not going out as much because it's a pandemic, um, there are some gorgeous Molly Crabapple worker portraits for the cost of, you know, a beer or two a month. As always, you can find out more about us and all of this on the Descent website, descentmagazineorg slash belabored. If you want to share your story of working under coronavirus or anything else, you can, as always, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you are working in delivery or programming, an employee or an independent contractor or laid off and fighting for unemployment, we want to hear from you. You can tweet at us, too, at hashtag belabored. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks. Solidarity. You've been listening to Dissent Magazine's Belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit dissentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.